Back in the 1970s, when my childhood pastor was in his first call, he received a welcome gift from the congregation, from a, from a member of the congregation. But this wasn't the usual ordination installation gift of money or vestments or gift cards. From this member, he received a framed embroidered work that read, Remember, Jim, that first, you are a Christian. Second, you are a husband. Third, you are a father. Fourth, you are a son. Fifth, you are a pastor. He said it was thought, a thoughtful and useful gift as it was always there to remind him of what his priorities should be. Getting priorities straight, of course, is not just a task for pastors. Although pastors can be notorious for having misplaced ones sometimes. My mother-in-law, being married to a pastor, would sometimes call the church the other woman. <laughs> pastors' wives here probably know what that's like. Getting priorities straight is a biblical imperative. It applies to all of us. The whole Old Testament could be classified as an exhortation to get one's priorities straight. This is especially true for Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is an extended, and I do mean extended, farewell sermon by Moses as the Israelites prepare to enter Canaan for 30 of its 34 chapters. He reminds the people of everything they're supposed to do when they are settled in the land. A refrain sounds through all of those chapters. Remember the Lord. You see, it had been a tough 40 years for the Israelites. While there had been joy upon their departure from Egypt, it quickly soured. Even though they saw God's power close up in Egypt, even though they had been freed from slavery, they quickly forgot this when adversity, when adversity struck. Was it because there, was no, there were no graves in Egypt they bitterly complain at the sea as the Egyptians gain on them. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have brought, taken us away to die in this desert? Just get the pathos in that, can't you? Much of the rest of the wilderness journey was likewise plagued by forgetfulness brought on by difficult circumstances and anxiety. They quickly forgot who gave them sustenance along the journey, who gave them food and water, who defended them from their enemies who led them by a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night. It got so bad at one point that the Israelites began forming a Back to Egypt committee. When the people forgot God, slavery and its knowns were preferable to freedom and its unknowns. So when the Israelites, 40 years and one generation later, prepared to enter the land, Moses urges them to remember. When they remember the, their God and God's teaching, they will live well. Not in a vending machine mechanical, I give to the Lord so he gives me this kind of way. But a way of life that is marked by remembering God's generosity, God's faithfulness, and God's love, first of all. It's a first commandment thing. 
When they remember their Lord above others, all others, other priorities can follow in the right place. Perhaps that's why Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9 is called a first catechism. And you can bet this inspired generation after generation of Lutheran cate uh, catechism students to, to memorize. That's what it says there. Keep them in your heart. Teach them to your children. It's a summary of all God's commandments and instructions. In these verses, these verses show how a free people live. Everything flows from remembering that the Lord is our God, that the Lord is one, and that we are to love the Lord with everything we have. Of course, the people forget this too, even after settling in the land. Despite the warnings to the Israelites to remember God, despite, despite the fact that the health of their community depends on it, they all too easily forget. Prosperity dulls their minds into thinking that they did everything themselves. See Deuteronomy 8.17. They all too easily follow the gods of the culture around them. See pretty much the whole Old Testament, but especially Deuteronomy 4.19. Instead of fearing the Lord, fear of a loss of revenue causes them to mistreat their fellow human being. Again, see pretty much the whole prophetic literature, but also Deuteronomy 15.9. Much of the rest of the Old Testament is a narrative of failure, showing how God's people failed to fear and love God above all things. Whenever we hear of the Israelites, we should see ourselves. Not much has changed about human nature in the past few thousand years. We may have fancier gadgets and remarkable means of, of convenience. We're able to broadcast this service to people who are not here in person today. That's amazing. But we may enjoy levels of abundance never before seen in human history. But we are liable to the, the precisely the same pitfalls that they were. We, too, can be lured into thinking we got everything we have by ourselves. We, too, can easily follow the gods of the culture around us, although instead of literal gods, they may be disguised as nationalism, political ideology, consumerism, you name it. And our fear of loss can cause us to mistreat our neighbors, too. In that way, the Bible is a tremendous gift. Because it reminds us that there is truly nothing new under the sun. And it reminds us again and again that God is a God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness beyond our wildest imagination. When Israel failed to keep God's commandments, God did not abandon them. God did permit them to experience the consequences of their actions, but abandonment was never on the table. Instead, God continued to show them every kind of generosity. After they were destroyed by a foreign power, Jerusalem did not remain in ruins, but God turned the heart of the Persian king to permit them to return to their land. God inspired people like Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah to work toward the rebuilding of the temple. Time and time again, 
The Bible tells us how God renewed the people's hope. God provided for the people's needs. And this provision culminated in the giving of God's own self, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus not only reiterated and renewed God's instruction for a new generation of God's people, Jesus also gave God's people with every time and every place the greatest gift of all, new life with God by the forgiveness of sin. New life, a fresh start, is here for you and me every Sunday. When we receive Jesus' body and blood in communion, that new life is once again renewed within us. Our sins are forgiven again and again. And in that new life, we find that we don't have to fall victim to the same patterns of thinking. We can realize that because of the Lord, we ultimately have what we have and we are who we are. We can set aside all other gods which vie for our allegiance and remember that the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And we can stop fearing everything our culture fears and instead fear only God. And then we can be generous as God is generous. As people of God, We celebrate God's generosity toward us. Every week is a renewal of that same celebration. As Catherine said, it's even part of our worship. Though we don't pass the plate anymore, there is still a place for the offering. We offer, as the prayer says, ourselves, our time, and our possessions, signs of God's gracious love. God's love is the driver behind all of our giving. We don't do that by ourselves. As God has given, so we give. And then God, in the communion liturgy, gives us again the greatest gift of all, Jesus the Messiah. Our giving is always bookended by God's giving. Giving, then, is the exercise of God's own image in you and in me. As we celebrate God's generosity these next few weeks, I pray that we might approach giving as that exercise of God's image within us. We give not primarily because of the congregation's need or because we fear not having enough, but because God first gave and continues to give to us. We give because God first gave and continues to give to us. All our giving is a grateful response to the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. God, make that so in us today and always. Thanks be to God. Amen.